The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, I've been watching my share of middle school C-team, eighth grade volleyball lately, and if, if you haven't had that pleasure, it's, it's something. As I've, been, as I've been watching eighth grade middle school girls volleyball C-team, um, I've noticed a couple of characteristics of some, but not all, middle school volleyball girls. Uh, the first is uh, a blindness to their own badness, okay? And uh, a second is judgmentalism towards everyone else's, okay? Now, for example, and this, this is not me picking on any one girl, uh, there were several doing it. In fact, there may have been a Bumgarner family representative involved in it at one point. But, uh, for example, here comes, here comes the ball, right? And a, a girl, she just, just whiffs on it, just hits her in the face or something like that, you know? And another, one, another girl on the team, her teammate, mind you, turns over, like, towards her parents in the crowd and, and like, goes, oh, and rolls her eyes, right, scoffs, and, and is almost like saying, like, can you believe that I got to be on the team with this kid, Right? And, and, um, but then on the very, on the very next play, right, uh, here comes the ball to her now. And, uh, here, here it comes and she's getting ready for it. And it's coming right at her and boom, there it goes a million direct, million miles an hour in the other direction, off the wall, off the rafters, almost makes it through the basketball hoop and she just kind of shrugs it off and, and, and goes on, right? Uh, blind to her own badness, see, and judgmental towards everyone else's as I've watched this over the last month or so. It, which made for some great parenting lessons. Um, I, I couldn't help but think about Romans chapter 2, <laughs> okay? See, when we turn from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 2, which is what we're doing today is we just preach through the, the book of Romans, okay? The, but as we move from chapter 1 to chapter 2, the target of Paul's letter changes, Okay, in chapter 1, especially the second half, by and large, Paul was targeting, you'll remember this from last week, non-Christian Gentiles, the, the unrighteous, we, we might say. Now, though, as we turn into chapter 2, he changes his target in, in large part to non-Christian Jews, those who see themselves as righteous, we might say, as God's people, they might say, regardless of what this fellow Paul has to say. And this is important to understand in Romans. It's important for us as we, as we read through the book of Romans to distinguish between the, the audience of Paul's letter, Christians in Rome. Okay, that's who he's writing to, Jews and Greeks. It's important for us to distinguish between the audience of his letter and Paul's sometimes rhetorical target in his letter. Paul employs, see, throughout his letter, a, a literary device that's known as a diatribe. A diatribe. And what a diatribe, what it, what it does in a letter like this is it interacts with an imaginary opponent, anticipating this imaginary opponent's objections to his message. And, and it's not snarky, okay? Uh, not like we tend to think like, oh, you know, something like that. It's not, it's not intended to be combative, just interactive. You see, Paul, Paul, by the time that he wrote his letter to the Romans, he had been preaching the gospel for nearly 22 years, right? He knows how people respond to it. He knows their objections. He knows, he's experienced, for example, Jews chiming in and even attempting to pile on to his sharing the condemnation of the unrighteous Gentiles as he preached the gospel of good news to them. He's seen, okay, the self-satisfied smug looks on their faces, 
Perhaps he's, he's seen them respond to his pointing out of idolatry and same-sex acts as we talked about last week by saying that, you know, that's right, those people, those ones, they're the problem. We agree, Paul, you're right, they're bad. And, and so he turns now <laughs> and addresses them too. Remember Paul's greater point here. He's working towards it in this longer section of the letter. He's he's inching towards it, making sure none of us miss it. But in Romans 3, chapter 10, he will say, no one is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. There's no distinction. Jew and Greek, religious and irreligious, First-time comer to the church and 50-year veteran of the church. Remember, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here in chapter 2, he flushes out even more of the the all by addressing the Jews, non-Christian Jews in particular, in this part of his diatribe. He addresses here, we might say, the self-righteous, okay? And he points out, firstly, two characteristics of self-righteousness. Second, he he tells us about the consequence of self-righteousness. And third, we'll see what repenting of self-righteousness looks like. Okay, now the two characteristics of self-righteousness that Paul points out here are the same two that can be seen on the eighth grade volleyball court, all right? Uh, The the first of which, you'll recall, was a blindness to our own badness, Or another way to say it, you see the sin of others without seeing sin in yourself. Jesus had that great example of taking the the log out of your eye, right, before you go for the speck in, in someone else's. Look at verse, look how Paul talks about it in verse 1, Romans chapter 2. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, notice here what Paul's not saying, okay? He, he's not saying they condemn themselves simply by the act of judging. Sometimes that's what we think Paul says. Well, Bible says don't judge. If that were the case, though, he'd stop halfway through that second sentence. He'd just say, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? No, they condemn themselves. Why? How? Well, keep reading. You condemn yourselves in your judging of others because, do you see the because there? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. (laughs) That's Paul's argument. He's not prohibiting us here from rebuking one another. No, he's rebuking those who, though they are blind to it, do the very same things that they are so quick to see in others. (laughs) This is Paul coming out onto the volleyball court ever so respectfully and pointing out the obvious, uh, excuse me, you just hit the balls into the rafters yourself there. (laughs) This is how self-righteousness works though, isn't it? it? It blinds us to our own badness. The old British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once said it this way. He said, you'll never make yourself feel that you are a sinner. Because there's a mechanism in you as the result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. (laughs) You see what Lloyd-Jones is saying? He's saying, we're always the last to see our own badness. We're always the last to... Call it what it is. There's a default mechanism inside of us that's always defending, that's always excusing our own sinfulness. It was true of the non-Christian Jews in Paul's day. It can be true of us today. 
I mean, think about it. Ask yourself this question this morning. Just be a little self-reflective today. Ask yourself this question. What are the sins that I am tempted to excuse in myself while condemning them and others? That's what's going on here. That's what Paul's getting after. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And we all do it to some extent, don't we? I mean, I know probably you disagree with that, but I know your internal defense mechanisms are firing up right now, but we all do it. You ever notice how annoyed you are when you're driving down the road and you look over to the car next to you and you see somebody on their phone and you're like, oh, gosh, what are they doing? Oh, their phone. Right? And, and, you, and you, you, know, you, you think that they're crazy and they're dangerous and all that, but isn't it true that sometimes, once in a while, you respond to that text message while you're driving? Oh, you use text-to-voice, that makes it, or, or you know, voice-to-text, that makes it better, right? Or, or, or maybe it's not texting, because that's crazy, right? Um, but, but maybe it's, you're, you're fiddling with that app, that, that map thing, trying to figure out where you're going, or trying to get that song to play just right, just once in a while, just once in a while, not all the time, that'd be, you know, not doing it like that. See, we're all guilty of this in one way or another. None of us lives up to our own standards. Whether it's reading through the second half of Romans 1 and honing in on same-sex sins while excusing your own lusts, or condemning the use of pornography while secretly viewing it yourself, whether it's reading the longer list at the end of Romans 1 and condemning those who murder, for example, while failing to realize that even the anger in your heart, according to Jesus, is just the same. Last week we talked about this, that the the root of it all is idolatry. And who of us here is completely free of that exchange? We all let things other than God slip into the place of God in our life from time to time. We all sin. But we're slow to see it in ourselves. We're quick to excuse it in ourselves or we make light of it when it's in ourselves. The human condition, we might say, has an incredible capacity to be critical of everyone except ourselves. And that's true from the volleyball court to the interstate to the sanctuary and everywhere in between. Now, maybe right now you're thinking, not me, Bumgarner, not me. You know, you you might be thinking, listen, I came in here this morning very, very aware of my own sinfulness. You might be thinking, I, I know I am completely unworthy of God's love. I know that I am vile. I know that I am wretched. But, but listen, even the admission of acknowledging some of your sinfulness doesn't free you from this. Sometimes we'll acknowledge just enough, actually, to detract from what we really need to be confessing. Appearing just transparent enough to deflect from other areas of sin in in our lives. Again, we're blind to them. Self-righteousness, we're blind to our own badness. Lloyd-Jones is right. We're always defending. Have you ever found yourself, for example, growing impatient with someone else's impatience? All the parents and toddlers said, ouch, you know? What about growing angry with someone else's anger? Experiencing a lack of compassion toward someone's lack of compassion. Judging someone for judging someone. Look at us. We found ways even to look down our nose at people looking down their noses at people. We have become even self-righteous of people who are (laughs) self-righteous. 
You know, our enemy is doing some really good and really crafty work in this season of the church. Crazy, horrible stuff, right? I mean, I mean that in the broad sense of the church. I mean it in the narrow sense of our church. Have you found yourself in any way talking bad about someone or gossiping about someone who you believe may just be talking bad or gossiping about you? Failing to give someone the benefit of the doubt for not giving you the benefit of the doubt. Growing smug towards the smug, slandering the slanderer, responding with insolence towards the insolent, or with faithlessness to those struggling with faithlessness. It cuts in every direction. It's so subtle. It's so sneaky. It's both slick and sick, and Satan loves to use it to sow division amongst God's people. It's self-righteousness. One of the key characteristics of a self-righteous heart is a blindness to our own badness. The second characteristic of self-righteousness that Paul points out then is judgmentalism towards everyone else's. See, one of the gospel hurdles that Paul had to get over when he was, when he was interacting with the Jews was their own sense of being right with God to begin with. That their covenant privilege, we might say, meaning that the belief that they were fine, they're fine, they were guaranteed protection from God's wrath because they were God's people, his covenant people, they thought. The, the problem in the world, see, according to the, the self-righteous Jews, was all those unrighteous Gentiles out there. Hmm? God wouldn't show forth his wrath towards them as Jews. They're his people. But that mistakes something quite major that Paul, he, he won't fully elaborate it on until Romans 9, when, when he'll say, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. But look, even here at the end of chapter 2, we'll look at this more next week, but in the last two verses of chapter 2, if you look down at it, Paul's going to talk about the difference between circumcision in the flesh, the sign of the Old Testament covenant, the, the marking of belonging to God for, for God's covenant people. Paul's going to talk about the difference between outward circumcision and the inward circumcision of the heart. And he addresses all of this to get over the gospel hurdle of their self-righteousness. Listen to how he addresses it beginning in Romans 2, verse 2. He says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Look what Paul's doing here. He, he's, he's self-identifying with these Jews. He, he's relating to them. He's a Jew himself, right? We know, he says, I know it and you know it. We know and we agree with the judgment of God against those who do the things in the second half of Romans chapter 1. Paul is not appealing to his truth here. He's appealing to God's truth here. That there is no my truth and your truth that here that Paul's appealing to. He's appealing to truth that he and he's appealing to truth that he and these non-Christian Jews know to be true. The truth of God from the word of God. He goes on in verse 3, do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? that you will escape the judgment of God? Look what Paul's doing. He, he's saying, I know it and you know it. God has holy standards. He does. And when those are transgressed, judgment is due. Oh, he's gracious and merciful, right? But he's judge as well. He says, you, my friend, have transgressed the standards. You yourself, you practice them. Do you therefore think that you will somehow escape the judgment of God? And he's asking that because they did. They did think that, or at the very least, they lived as if it was true. 
I mean, go back to the volleyball court. It's like the, the scoffer on the team, blind to her own badness, scoffing at others, all the, way, all the while somehow thinking that she's immune to being benched. I love how John Stott summarizes this in his commentary. He points out the difference between those who are addressed at the end of Romans chapter 1 and those who are addressed here. Listen to how Stott summarizes. He says, what, what then is the difference between the two? It is that the first group, the, the unrighteous ones, the Gentiles, last week we were talking about, is that the first group do the things that they know to be wrong and approve of others who do them. That's in verse 32, which he, which he says, that's at least consistent. Whereas the second group, those who we're talking about today, they do what they know to be wrong and condemn others who do them, which is hypocritical. The first group, he says, disassociates themselves entirely from God's righteous decree in regard to both themselves and others, whereas the second group deliberately identify themselves with it by setting themselves up as judges, only to find out that they are being judged for doing the same things. This is where the problem of, of judging comes in, I hope you see. Not in the judging of sinfulness of others, per se. The, the, the Jews here, they agreed with the judgments of God. Get them, Paul. You know, that, that's what they would have been saying as they heard the second half of Romans chapter 1. Get them! Well, the problem comes when they don't apply that same standard of judgment to themselves. Might this be true of us in any way? Look at, look at verse 4. It says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Friends, this is where the rubber hits the road for us here in this room. This question is one Paul posed to the self-righteous Jews of his day and one that we must pose to ours to expose any self-righteousness in ourselves. And so ask yourself, be self-reflective this morning. Are there any areas of my life, any areas of sin, where I am presuming upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. Anywhere at all. I mean, you got to read the Bible to answer that question, don't you? I mean, how else would you know, right? But, but listen, we're not only to read God's word, we got to let God's word read us. Lest we fall into the same pit of self-righteousness here, judging, other by the word of, uh, judging others by the word of God, but failing to apply that same judgment to ourselves. We don't just have to read God's word. We've got to read it comprehensively, don't we? Isn't there a tendency in each one of us to, to kind of hone in on different passages of Scripture? Well, eh, maybe let's not focus so much on that one over there. You know what I'm saying? Are there any areas in your life where you know what God's word says? You know it prohibits this, that, or the other. But you say, well, God will forgive me. You know, just, just, this one, just once more. Are there any areas of your life where God commands you to do something? Some area of active obedience. And, and you know what God's word says. You know that you're commanded to do it, but you still blow it off. Man, eh, God will forgive me. He's gracious. He's merciful. I have Jesus. He forgives all my sins. All the while failing to realize that God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience here is meant to lead you to repentance. 
You remember last week? You remember Romans 1, verse 24 and 26 and 28, where we are shown how God reveals his wrath? Not by divine intervention, but by divine non-intervention, giving us up to the over-desires of our hearts, be it sexual or slothful. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are living in non-repentant sin, God's kindness, God's forbearance, God's patience are not his endorsement of your lifestyle. They are his indictment. His divine non-intervention is your invitation to repentance, even this morning. And you might say, gee, Pastor Todd, boy, I was really hoping for a cheerful sermon this morning. You know, can't you be a little more encouraging? Listen, we'll get there, but first we have to pass through here. We must pass through the characteristics of the self-righteous so that we can examine ourselves for them because, number two, Paul next tells us in this passage about the consequences of self-righteousness. And therefore, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't too. And so if being blind to our badness and being judgmental towards everyone else's are characteristics of self-righteousness, what's the consequence? Paul tells us in verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's here that we return to the theme that was first introduced to us in chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God It's being revealed. Do you remember what he said? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Make no mistake. Christian non-repentance is a form of ungodliness. It's a form of unrighteousness. And the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against it. Living as a living as an unconscious antinomian. Like if you like if you think that you are saved by grace and I'll have no responsibility, no responsibility to pursue a life of godliness and obedience at all. To, to not live out that is to not live out the true Christian faith. Living in unrepentant sin, including sins of unrighteousness, brings consequence. What consequence? It says it right here: the wrath of God. You're storing it up, Paul says. You're storing it up for the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, and it will be revealed justly. The last paragraph here is is bookended by God showing no partiality. We read in verse 6, He, that's God, will render to each one according to his works. And then in verse 11, For God shows no partiality. Everything in between there is meant to prove those bookended points. Let's read the, the fuller paragraph. He says, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immorality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but, by, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. There's two ways to live here, Paul says. The the first way is by patience and well-doing. It's by persevering and doing good, seeking God's glory, his honor, immorality. 
The result of that way of living, eternal life, verse 7. Glory and honor and peace, verse 10. The second way of living, then, is the opposite. Rather than seeking God's glory, this way of living is described here as self-seeking. Rather than seeking God's glory, this is the way of living described here is, is seeking after glory for yourself. Rather than living for God's honor, they don't obey the truth, they obey unrighteousness. And the result of that way of living, wrath and fury. Verse 8. Tribulation and distress. Verse 9. And catch Paul's points from the bookends. There is no partiality here. This goes for the Jew as well as the Greek. He will render to each one according to his works. What's the consequence for self righteousness? It's the same consequence for all the unrighteousness that we looked at last week. The wrath of God. You're not in the first category of living, Paul says to these, these Jews. You're in the second. And listen, if you're here and you know your Bible and you know your gospel and you might be tempted to, hear, you might be tempted to say here, well, hang on a second. Slow it down there. Slow it down. I thought we were saved by grace through faith, not by our works. Right? What's all this talk then here about God rendering to each one according to his works? And that's a good question, and it leads us into the final point. The, the, the point that Paul is making in this section isn't about how we get right with God, not, not in our passage today. He told us that in chapter 1, verse 17. He'll return to it later in the letter as well, but back in 117, he told us that the righteousness of God is being revealed to us from faith for faith. We are saved by grace through faith, not by our works, so that no one would boast. And with that definitively said, we can also say, with Paul, works matter. Not as the basis for how we are saved, but rather as evidence of the fact that we indeed have the faith that saves. It's why James teaches that faith without works is dead. He's not saying that our works save us. He's saying saving faith works. And so it's not a contradiction to say that we're saved by faith and will be judged by our works. It's not a contradiction. It doesn't undermine justification by grace through faith to say that God will render to each one according to his works. Another way to put it, the presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts is revealed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives. That applies to our obedience, obeying God's word, living in ways congruent with the scriptures, not doing things that, that it forbids, doing the things that it commands, living for God, living for his glory, living for his honor, not self-seeking, not living self-righteously. You might be beginning to sense, you know, <laughs> But we all do it, you know? Wait, that was sort of the point a minute ago. When I asked you to reflect on you remember the question? It, did it search you in any areas of your life, any areas of sin, any at all, where you're presuming upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? We all do it. That This sort of sin still is resident in all of us. So what do we do? Well, we turn to Jesus and we understand the gospel. That's what we do. See, the, the opposite 
of presumption? Or do you presume upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? The opposite of presumption is not perfection. It's penitence. Look back to chapter 5. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 5 in the text. Paul says, it's because of your hard and impenitent heart that you're storing up wrath for yourself. Another translation reads, your stubborn and unrepentant heart. That's the idea. That's the problem. What's the way out? Repentance. Repenting from all sin, even your self-righteousness, which is hard because remember, one of the key characteristics of self-righteousness is that we are blind to our own badness, a blindness to our own self-righteousness. The self-righteous, they, they see no need for repentance, not in themselves. I mean, just read, just read the Gospels. This is what Jesus is often dealing with with the Pharisees, isn't it? They see everyone's sin but their own. They judge everyone but themselves, and therefore, they won't repent. They can't. You can't repent of sin that you don't acknowledge. And it's here where we're getting very close to the heart of the Gospel. Very close. You see, you'll never repent of your own self-righteousness until you really despair of your ability to be right before God on your own. I'll say that again. You'll never repent of your own self-righteousness until you really, until you utterly despair of your ability to be right before God on your own. That's what self-righteousness is, after all. Thinking that somehow, on your own, you're able to stand before a righteous and holy God. You've deceived yourself into thinking that you're in right standing with God. But ultimately, you're blind to your own badness and you're not in right standing with God. This is precisely why Jesus said that there will be those on the last day who cry, Lord, Lord, right? And what's he going to say? Depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because they were self-righteous. Which is really to not be righteous at all. You see, there's actually no such thing to be self-righteous before God. You can't be. The opposite of self-righteousness, then, is, of course, having the righteousness of another, namely, Christ's righteousness. Trusting in Christ rather than self. Turning to Christ rather than self. That's what repentance is all about, after all. It's not just, it's not just stop it. It's not just quit sinning. No, repentance is turning from sin and turning to Jesus. Trusting in him for salvation from sin. Trusting in him for righteousness. See, the problem with us in our self-righteousness is that we don't despair. Listen to how Martin Luther said this 500 years ago in his historic work, The Bondage of the Will. He said, God has assuredly promised his grace to the humble. That is, to those who lament and despair themselves. But no man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his powers, devices, endeavors, will, works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely, of God alone. For as long as he is persuaded that he himself can do even the least thing towards salvation, he retains some self-confidence and does not altogether despair of himself and therefore he is not humble before God but presumes that there is or at least hopes or desires that there may be some place, time, and work for him by which he may at length attain to salvation. But when a man has no doubt that everything depends on the will of God, 
then he completely despairs of himself and chooses nothing for himself but waits for God to work. Then he has come close to grace. (laughs) You see what Luther's saying? It's the same thing that Paul is saying in Romans chapter 2. Paul, Paul is working to tell us, to tell the Gentiles, to tell the Jews, to tell everyone, you and me as well, you can't do it on your own. You can't. As fallen human beings, we enter into the palace of joy through the doorway of despair. Fullness doesn't come but through emptiness. That happens at the point of conversion. It happens decisively at the point of conversion when we confess our inability to get ourselves right before God by all of our efforts and attempts and instead collapse into the welcoming arms of Jesus. And it continues in our life day after day as we stay there. In fact, one reason you may not be growing in Christ is because you've drifted away from the healthy discipline of self-despair and slipped over into the sin of self-righteousness. Look, all of this, right? All this sermon, all of Romans 2, it, it is all intended to tell us and remind us that the biblical gospel, that the real good news gospel, isn't about assistance. It's about rescue. You're not just a kid on the volleyball court needing better manners and better coaching. You're dead in the locker room. You need to be made alive, resurrected, united together with Christ. And until you acknowledge that and surrender to that, you'll always be fiddling around with self-righteousness instead of really resting in Christ's righteousness. But once you've got the real deal, once you've got... Christ's righteousness, the the divine prerequisite to everything else, (laughs) once you realize that you were sinful, more sinful than you can ever even reckon, that even your attempts to clean yourself up and present yourself at church as holy and upright, that even that is sinful, once you become unblinded, unblinded to your own badness by the power of the Spirit, And you begin to see the depths of it and are sober by it and are humbled by it and turn from it. And instead to Jesus, trusting in him, the the, the one who came to bear the wrath of God that you've been storing up for yourself with your self-righteousness. When you collapse into his arms and you do it over and over again, listen, there is not a more secure place in the world. When you realize just how sinful you are, just how incapable and unworthy you are, and yet simultaneously just how loved you are by him. When, when, when he says, and you hear him say to you, come to me, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from, listen, rest from all your efforts of self-righteousness. Rest from all your judgmentalism, which, which might just be a protectionary measure deflecting from your own need. When you realize that you're not left in despair because you have Jesus, your posture becomes one of continual expectant empowerment from on high to live in the ways that God calls us to. You know, when we come to the table each week, 
This is, this is the mindset that we, that we bring to this table. We, we come needy <laughs> to this table, friends. We, we come uh, aware of the, the, the characteristics of self-righteousness in our own hearts. We, we come aware of the, the consequence for self-righteousness. But we also come not with hardened and penitent hearts. We come humbled by the gospel. It's pictured to us here at this table. We come with an awareness of and an agreement with the fact that no one is righteous. No, not one. And we trust. We come laying down our attempts of self-righteousness, trusting in the righteousness of another. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who on the night that he was betrayed, he said, this is my body, which is for you. It's not here to give you a little bit of assistance. (laughs) My body was broken for you because of your sin. And he took the cup after the supper and he lifted it up and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And pour out a little bit of it for you just to, to kind of take away some of the things that you're dealing with. No, he says, drink of this, all of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Father, as we come to this table, we come humbly. Help us, Spirit of God, to come humbly. As we come and we we take this bread, will we be reminded, will we hear the words even this morning, the blessing this morning, the, the body of Christ was broken for me. Spirit of God, would you unblind us to our badness? Would you reveal to us, even this morning as we walk to this table, areas where we are living self-righteously? And as we drink this cup, would we hear and rest in the blessing that the blood of Christ is poured out for our sins? Would you remind us of the forgiveness that is ours as we turn from our sin, turn instead to Jesus, trust not in our own self-righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. Nourish us here, Lord. Use this means of grace as a way to nourish, strengthen, empower us to trust even more in the righteousness of Christ. We pray in Jesus' holy and perfect name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.